The following sermon by Stephen Charnock is called A Discourse of Mourning for Other Men's Sins. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst of it. Ezekiel 9 verse 4. When God in the former chapter had charged the Jews with their idolatry and the multiplicity of abominations committed in his temple, in verse 18, had passed a resolve that he would not spare them but deal in fury with them, though they should solicit him with the strongest and most importunate supplications in this chapter, he calls and commissions the executioners of his just decree, verse 1. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand, and declares whom and in what manner he would punish and whom he would pardon. The executioners of God's vengeance are the Chaldeans, described by the situation of them from Judea and the direct road from that country to Jerusalem. Verse 2, Six men came from the way of the higher gate which lies towards the north. Babylon lay northeast from Jerusalem, and this gate was a way of entrance for travelers from those parts. It led also into the court of the priests, which shows from whence the judgment should come and upon whom it should light. Six men, a certain number. Whether the Holy Ghost alludes to a particular number of nations which the Chaldean army might be composed of under their prince, who reigned over several countries, or respects the chief captains or marshals of his army, which are named in Jeremiah 39.3, or speaks with reference to the other places in which the city was assaulted by that army, as some think is uncertain. In every man a slaughter weapon in his hand, a hammer of destruction, an instrument of death. The word seems to signify a weapon much like a pole axe. And one of them clothed with linen with a writer's inkhorn by his side. Christ says the ancients, and so they understood it before, and in Jerome's time, who appears here in his priestly habit, a linen garment being the vestment of the priest, Leviticus 16.4. White is an emblem of peace. Christ seals his people with his spirit, the spirit of peace. John Calvin doesn't reject this interpretation, but rather understands it of an angel whom God commissioned to secure his people in this destroying judgment. And indeed, angels have often appeared in the form of men and clothed with linen as to Daniel chapter 5, 5, chapter 12, 6, and 7. Christ's royal power is founded upon his priestly office, which is the ground of all the spiritual and temporal salvation believers have from God. Ink horn. The word is so translated. Though the word says some signifies a table, such as they then used to write upon with a piece of iron, rather it signifies a case to put those pens in wherewith they wrote. And they went and stood beside the brazen altar. It is uncertain whether this respects the original cause of their punishment, namely, their offering sacrifices to their idols upon the altar which was consecrated to the service of God, or else respects the sacrifices of vengeance. Those were instrumentally to offer to God's justice. 
The additional punishment of God's enemies is called a sacrifice in Scripture, Isaiah 34, 6, a sacrifice in Balsara, Jeremiah 46, 10. God's day of vengeance is called God's sacrifice in the north country. Observation 1. With what a small number, if God is pleased, can he destroy a city or nation? But 6. Mentioned. Almightiness needs not great numbers to affect his will. No, not a man, since he can do it by his immediate hand and command judgment in a trice. Number two, how quick are God's creatures to obey his call for the punishment of a rebellious people? He calls those six men, and they presently appear ready to execute God's pleasure. Number three, God does not bring judgments on a people till their wickedness has overgrown the goodness of his own children. Six to destroy, but one to preserve. A sixfold work of judgment to one of preservation, intimating that there were six bad to one good in the city. Number four, the security of God's people in this world as well as that to come depends upon the priestly office of Christ. Ezekiel 9, verse 3. And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. The glory of God, which was in the propitiatory above the cherubims, went from one cherub to another till it came to the threshold, as birds that are leaving their nests leap from one branch to another till they fly quite away. Observation 1. God is not fixed in any one place. He has his temple among his people, discovers himself in his ordinances, but upon provocation departs. The glory of God and his ordinances are not entailed upon any nation longer than they walk worthy of them. Number two, the glory of God's ordinances is obscured among a people before judgments come upon them. The glory of God went up from the cherub. I will take away the hedge of my vineyard, and it shall be eaten up and break down the wall of it, and it shall be trodden down, Isaiah 5, verse 5. The ordinances of God are understood by some interpreters to be the hedge and the wall of a people. The temple is forsaken by God and then polluted in judgment by men. Verse 7. God then comes to the man clothed with linen that had the writer's inkhorn by his side and said to him, Go through the midst of Jerusalem and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that are done in the midst of it. Verses 4 and 5. He commands the executioners of his wrath to go after him and smite without any pity both small and great, beginning at his sanctuary. Interpreters trouble themselves much what this mark should be and tell us from origin that a believing Jew told him the ancient Samaritan letter called Tawath, written like a cross. But that is a fancy. The ancient Samaritan letter being the same with the Phoenician was not writ in that form. Some say it was a law because a Hebrew word signifies the law. Begins with that letter to show that such were to be marked that were devoted to the observance of the law. Marked they were, says John Calvin, with a ta, because that being the last letter in the alphabet shows that the people of God are of the lowest account among men and the offscouring of the world. Observation. The blood of Christ upon the conscience is the best mark of distinction as the blood of the Paschal Lamb upon the posts was a mark in which the Israelites were discerned from the Egyptians and the edge of the angels destroying sword diverted from them. It was a mark of a special providence of God 
The destroying judgments were to follow the sealing angel and not touch those that were marked by him on their forehead. All judgments have their commissions from God. Whom to touch, whom to overthrow. God does not strike at random. The man in a linen garment was to bridle the Chaldeans and direct their swords to the right objects. God overpowers the natural inclinations of all his creatures whom he appoints executioners. God has a hook in the nostrils of Leviathan. Nothing can be done without the leave of providence. Man forms the weapons. God gives the edge and directs the stroke. Observation 2. In the highest fury and vengeance, God has reserves of mercy for his own people. Angels are appointed to be preservers of his children in the midst of the destroying of a people. Invisible angels are joined with visible enemies to conduct and govern their motions according to the command of their great general. God's judgments are dispensed with greater kindness to his people than desires to take vengeance upon his enemies. He hath a heart of mercy as well as a hand of justice. Number three, God is more careful of his people than revengeful against his enemies. He first orders the sealing of the mourners before he orders the destruction of the rebels. He will first honor his mercy and the protection of the one before he will glorify his justice and the destruction of the other. Angel has orders to secure Lot before Sodom was fired. The executioners of his wrath were to march after the securing angel, not before him, nor equal with him, and were only to cut off those whom the angel had passed by. Number four, if you take this mark for a mark on the conscience, then observe that serenity of conscience is a gift of God to his people in time of severe judgments, as when death is near, the conscience of a good man is most serene and sings sweetly in his breast the notes of his own integrity. In judgments, as well as in death, God sets conscience upon its pleasant notes. But this mark is not properly meant here. The conscience is a mark to ourselves, but this is a mark to the executioners. Number five, the places where God has manifested the glory of his ordinances are the subjects of his greatest judgments upon their provocations. Go through the city, through Jerusalem, that Jerusalem in which I have manifested my glory, which I have entrusted with my oracles, which I have protected in the midst of enemies, like a spark in the midst of many waters. Go through that city, into the midst of it, and let not your eye spare. Number six, the greatest fury of God in a time of judgment often lights upon the sanctuary. Begin at the sanctuary, defile the house. Not a man of them escaped, was left. He saw not in the vision what was done in the city, but he was left alone in the temple. The whole Sanhedrin, the seventy ancients, had revolted to idolatry, Ezekiel 8, 11. And the stroke first lights upon them, verse 6. Then they began at the ancient men which were before the house. And the verse observe, 1. God's care in the preserving of his people. He commands the angel to go through the midst of the city and set a mark, a visible mark, upon their foreheads. Number 2. The qualification of the person so preserved. He does not say all that have not committed idolatry, but such a sigh, which signifies the intenseness of their grief sigh and cry notes an intense groaning and sorrow number two the extensiveness of the object all the abominations 
doctrine. Lamenting the sins of the times and places in which we live is a duty incumbent on us, acceptable to God and a great means of preservation under public judgments. There are three branches. One, it is a duty. Two, a duty acceptable to God. God has his eye particularly upon them that practice it. Number three, it is a means of preservation under public judgments. First, it is a duty. If we are by the prescript of God to bewail in confession the sins of our forefathers, committed before our being in the world, certainly much more are we to lament the sins of the age in which we live, as well as our own, Leviticus 26.40. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if then their uncircumcised be humbled, then will I remember my covenant. Posterity are part of the same body with their ancestors, and every member in a nation is part of the body of a nation. Every drop in the sea is a part of the ocean. God made a standing law for an annual fast in which they should afflict their souls. The tenth day of the seventh month, answering to our September, and backed it with a severe penalty. He whose soul was not afflicted in that day should be cut off from among his people, which the Jews understand of cutting off by the hand of the Lord, Leviticus 23, 27, and 29. The particular sin for which they were thus annually to afflict their souls was that national sin of the golden calf and the judgment of the Jewish doctors. It was also the practice of holy men in their private retirements, says Daniel chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. He bewails the sins of his ancestors. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6, much more is it our duty to bewail a present guilt. The church's eyes are compared to the fishpoles of Heshbon. Song of Solomon 7, verse 4, and are weeping for her own and others' sins. To what purpose has God given us passions but to honor him with? And our affections of grief and anger cannot be better employed than for the interest, nor better bestowed than for the service of him who has implanted those passions in us. Our natural motions should be ordered for the God of nature, and spiritual ordered for the God of grace. First, this is the practice of all believers in all ages. Before the deluge, Theth called the name of his son, which is born at the time of the profaning, the name of God in worship, Enoth, which signifies sorrowful or miserable, that he might in the sight of his son have a constant monitor to excite him to unholy grief for the profaneness and idolatry that entered into the worship of God, Genesis 4, verse 26. He called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, or profane it by calling upon it. The rational and most precious part of Lot was vexed with the unlawful deeds of the generation of Sodom, among whom he lived, Second Peter 2, verses 7 and 8. He had a horror and torment in his righteous soul at the execrable villainies he saw committed by his neighbors. Afflicted under it, it's under a grievous burden. It was a rack to him, as the other word in verse 8 signifies. The meekest man upon earth with grief and indignation breaks the tables of the law when he saw the holiness of it broken by the Israelites 
and expresses more his regret for that than his honor for the material stones in which God had with his own finger engraven the orders of his will. He is more desirous to destroy the idol than preserve the tables. Such an indignation against their sin cannot well be without grief for it. David, a man of the greatest goodness upon record, had a deluge of tears because it kept not God's law. Psalm 119, verse 136. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Besides his grief, which was not a small one, horror seized upon him upon the same account. Psalm 119, verse 53. Like a storm that tossed him to and fro. How doth poor Isaiah bewail himself and the people among whom he lived as men of polluted lips? Isaiah 6, 5. Perhaps such as could hardly speak a word without an oath, or by hypocritical lip service mock God in the very temple. Jeremiah is upon the same practice, Jeremiah 13, verse 17, when his soul should weep in secret for the pride of the people, and as if he was not satisfied with a few tears, wishes his head were a full springing fountain, to weep for the slain of the daughter of his people. For the sin, the cause, as well as the calamity, the effect. Jeremiah 9, verse 1. He wishes his head to be filled with the vapors from his heart and become a fountain. What a transport of sorrow had Ezra when he heard of the people's sins and mingling the holy seed with that of idolaters. A horror ran through his whole soul. His astonishment is twice repeated, Ezra 9, verses 3 and 4. Every faculty was alarmed at the sin of the people. It is probable John the Baptist used himself to those severities which are mentioned. Matthew 3, verse 4, because of the sinfulness of that generation among whom he lived. Paul discovers it to be a duty when he reproves the Corinthians for being puffed up and set a mourning for that fornication which had been committed by one of their profession. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2. And when he writes of some that made the glorious gospel subservient to their own bellies, he mixes his tears with his ink. Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. I tell you weeping, they are enemies to the cross of Christ. The primitive Christians did much but well the lapses of their fellows. Salerinus, among the epistles of Cyprian, acquaints Lucian of his great grief for the apostasy of a woman through fear of persecution, which afflicted him so that in the time of Easter, the time of their joy in that age, he wept night and day and was resolved that no delight should enter into his heart, till through the mercy of Christ she should be recovered to the church. And we find the witnesses clothed in sackcloth when they prophesied in a sinful time to show their grief for the public abominations, Revelation 11, verse 3. The kingdom of Satan can be no pleasure to a Christian and must therefore be a torment. Number two, it was our Savior's practice. As he had the highest love to God, so he must needs have the greatest grief for his dishonor. He sighed in his spirit for the incredulity of that generation. When they asked the sign after so many had been presented to their eyes, Mark 8, verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And the hardness of their hearts at another time raised his grief as well as his indignation. Mark 3, 5. He was sensible of the least dishonor to his father. Psalm 69, verse 9. The reproaches of them that reproached thee fell upon me. 
I took them to heart. Christ pleased not himself when his father was injured as the apostle descants upon it. When he applies it to Christ, Romans 15.3, soul was more pierced with the wrongs done to God than the reproaches which were directed against his own person. His grief was inexpressibly greater than can be in any creature. Because of the inimitable ardency of his love to God, the nearness of his relation to him and the unspotted purity of his soul, Christ had a double relation to man and to God. His compassion and men afflicted him with groans and tears at their bodily distempers. His affection to his father would make him grieve as much to see him dishonored as his love to man made him groan to see man afflicted. This grief for sin was one part of Christ's sacrifice and suffering, for he came to make a full satisfaction to the justice of God by enduring his wrath to the holiness of God by offering up an infinite sorrow for sin, which it was impossible for a creature to do. I suppose that Christ should only accept the punishment, but not bewail the offense which was the cause of it, a sacrifice for the sins of others without remorse for those sins, had not been acceptable. It had not been agreeable to the purity of his human nature. He wept at Jerusalem's obstinacy, as well as for her misery, and that in time of his triumph. The loud hosannas could not silence his grief and stop the expressions of it. Luke 19, verse 41. It was like a shower when the sun shined. If Christ, as our head, was filled with inward sorrow for men's displeasing the holiness of God, it is surely our duty as his members to imitate the afflictions of the head. He is unworthy of the name of Christ who is not afflicted as Christ was. can call Christ his master, who doth not imitate his graces, as well as pretend to believe his doctrine. He cannot see that God, who has distinguished him from the world, dishonored his precepts, contemned, but he must have his soul overcast with a gloomy cloud. It is our glory to value the things he esteemed, to despise the things he condemned, to rejoice in that in which he was delighted, and to grieve for that which was a manner of a sorrow and indignation. Thus was he afflicted, though he had a joy in the assurance of his father's favor and the assistance of his father's power. The highest assurance of God's love in particular to us ought not to hinder the impressions of grief for the dishonor of his name. Did Christ ever look upon a swinish world without melting into pity? Did he bleed for the sins of the world, and shall not we mourn for them? Number two. Mourning for the sins of others is an acceptable duty to God, since it is an imitating the copy of our Savior. It is acceptable to God. Nothing can please him more than to see his creatures tread in the steps of his Son. It is a fulfilling the whole law, which consists of love to God and love to our neighbors. It is set down as a character of charity, both as it respects God and man, not to rejoice in iniquity. 1 Corinthians 13.5 To be mightily troubled at it. It is a high testimony of love to God. The nature of true love is to wish all good to them we love, to rejoice when any good we wish arrives to them, to mourn when any evil afflicts them, and that with respect to the beloved object. Joshua was more careful of the name of God than of the safety of the people singly considered. Joshua 7.9 What will you do? unto thy great name, 
The glory of God is not dear to that man that can without any regret look upon his bespattered name. What affection has he to his friend? Who can see him torn in pieces by dogs and stand unconcerned at his calamity? God indeed is incapable of suffering. But what rending is it to a creature that is sin to the divine majesty? Can that man be said to love God who has no reflection when he sees others tumbling God from his throne and setting up the devil in his stead? Who can hear the tremendous name of God belched out by polluted lips upon every vile occasion and made to sport of stage and stews without any inward resentment? He only esteems God as his king, who cannot see his laws broken without remorse. How loyally did Moses his affection to God worked when he heard the name of God blasphemed and saw a calf usurp the adoration due to the God of heaven. And David felt the stroke of that sword in his own bowels, which was directed against the heart of God. Psalm 139, 20-22 The nearer God's name is to any, the more affected they are that God and Christ are loved and honored less than they desire they should be. It is hard sometimes to discern this love to God when God's interests and ours are joined, when we would mask our displeasure against some men's offenses with a care of God's honor, which is nothing but a hatred of the person sinning, or revenge against him for some conceived injury to us. The apostles calling for fire from heaven upon the Samaritans when they refused Christ, Luke 9, 53-55, might seem to be a generous concern for their master's honor, but Christ knew it proceeded much from their natural enmity which the Jews bore to the Samaritans. The best way to judge is when the interest is purely God's and has no fuel of her own discontents to boil up either grief or anger. Such an affection cannot but be highly acceptable to God, who is affected with the love of the creature and honors them that honor him as well as despises those that lightly concern themselves for him. Number three. Mourning for other men's sins is a means of preservation from public judgments. Noah did not preach righteousness without a sensible reflection on that unrighteousness he preached against. And he of all the world had the security of an ark for him and his family. When all the rest struggled for life and sunk in the waters, no mere man ever wore more black for the funeral of God's honor than David, nor was any blessed with more gracious deliverances. The more zeal we have for God, which is an affection made up of grief and anger, the more protection we have from him. The steps of a man, good man, our translation renders it, or valiant man, are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Psalm 37, verse 23. The more courage we have for God, the more we may expect both his conduct and security. If there be any hope in a time of actual or threatened judgments, it is by laying our mouths in the dust. Lamentation 3.29 If there be any ground of hope, it will shine forth when we are in such a posture. There might be others in Jerusalem who had not complied with the idolatry of that age, but none exempted from the stroke of the six destroyers, but those whose mouths lay in the dust and whose cries against the common sin ascended to heaven. Only the mourners among the good men are marked by the angel for indemnity from the public punishment. Sincerity always escapes best in common judgments, and this temper of mourning for public sins is the greatest note of it. This is the greatest note of sincerity. 
We read of an Ahab who put on sackcloth for his own sin and humbled himself before the Lord. Of a Judas sorrowing that he betrayed his master, self-interest might broach their tears and force out their sorrow. But never an Ahab or Judas or any other ungodly person in Scripture lamented the sins of others. Nay, they were all eminent for holiness that were noted for this frame. And we have mentioned before, Moses, a non-such, first speaking with God face to face, David, who only had that honorable title of a man after God's own heart, Isaiah, who had the fullest prospect of evangelical glory, all of the prophets, Ezra, a restorer of his country, Daniel, a man greatly beloved, Christ, a redeemer of the world, and Paul, the only apostle wrapped up in the third heaven, also humbled for the sins of the Corinthians in Second Corinthians twelve twenty one. Ezra hath a mighty character, Ezra 7.10. He prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And he both mourned for and prayed against a common sin. Lot is not recorded for this without a glorious epithet. The Spirit of God overlooks those sins of his mentioned in Scripture and speaks not of him by his single name, but just Lot. His righteous soul, Second Peter 2, 7 and 8, a sincere righteousness glittered in his vexation for the wronged interest of God. What a mark of honor does the Holy Ghost set upon this temper. It is not drunken Lot or incestuous Lot with which sins he is taxed in Scripture. This publicly religious spirit covered those temporary spots in a scutcheon. When all other signs of righteousness may have their exceptions, this temper is the utmost term which we cannot go beyond in our self-examination. The utmost prospect David had of his sincerity when he was upon a diligent inquiry after it was his anger and grief for the sin of others. When he had reached so far, he was at a stand and knew not what more to add. Psalm 139. Verses 21 to 24. Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. If there be anything that better can evidence my sincerity than this, Lord, acquaint me with it. Know my heart, i.e. make me to know it. He whose sorrow is only for manner confined within his own breast or streams with it in his life has reason many times to question the truth of it. But when a man cannot behold sin, as sin in another without sensible regret, it is a sign he has savingly felt the bitterness of it in his own soul. It is a high pitch and growth and a consent between the Spirit of God and the soul of a Christian when he can lament those sins and others in which the Spirit is grieved when he can rejoice with the Spirit rejoicing and mourn with the Spirit mourning. This is a clear testimony that we have not self-ends in the service of God, that we take not up religion to serve a turn, that God is our aim and Christ is our beloved. Now, upright persons have special promises for protection, Psalm 37, 18 and 19. The Lord knows the way of the upright. They shall not be ashamed in an evil time. They shall not be ashamed in it, though they may be dashed by it. They shall have a blessed inward security, though they may not always have an outward. When the wicked shall consume away as a fat of lambs and excel in the smoke, 
God's eyes are upon them in the worst of straits. Application, a reproof for us. Where is a man that hangs his harp upon the willows at the time the temple of God is profane? A head, a fountain of tears for common sense, is a commodity rare to be found, even in hearts otherwise gracious. The mourners have been for number but a few, like the gleanings of the vintage, but the sinners in Zion for multitude, like the weeds and fallow ground. What multitudes of those that disparage God and trample upon his sovereign commands, rend in pieces the very law of nature as well as the rites of religion. It were well if there were one to six, as was intimated in the beginning, there might be in Jerusalem. But we have reason to fear that one marker for the secret mourners would be too much for an hundred destroyers. I do not question, but there are some that sigh for the abominations they see and hear of, and that because they are dishonorable to God as well as injurious to themselves. But who of us present here can say we have been deeply enough and graciously enough affected with them? Certainly both you and I may bring a charge against ourselves before the throne of God for this neglect, that we have not been thoroughly humbled for and frequently bewailed public iniquities, and spread them before God in secret. If we are unconcerned in common sins, can we imagine God will leave us unconcerned in common judgments? Don't endeavor to keep the glory of God. He will extract glory to himself out of our ashes. If this frame be so little regarded among professors, what shall we say to many others that have as little remorse for the stabs of God's honor as they would have for the tragedy of an East India prince, nay, for the death of some inconsiderable fly? that have resentments for wrongs done to themselves and sorrow at command for any worldly loss, but not one spark of regret for affronts offered to God. In this cause their hearts are as dry as heath in a parching summer, amidst the tearing the name of God in pieces by execrable oaths, who bewails the impudent uncleanness boasted of by concubines in the face of the sun, who mourns for so many thousand foreheads bearing the mark of the beast, and so many thousands more preparing to receive it.